Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzes. When redevelopment comes to town, there are often some that get left behind. Documentarians David McMahon and Sarah Burns retrace the timeline of one particular housing project, and coming up, they'll share the history behind their documentary, East Lake Meadows, A Public Housing Story. And later, we'll learn some American food history as author Anne Byrne discusses her book, American Cake. But first, let's look at some very recent history. Last year, when the pandemic first quarantined many of us, some musicians in Atlanta were left longing for a way to share their music and connect with their community. From this desire, Kimono My House was born an Atlanta-based virtual venue and social media group that has since hosted hundreds of house concerts and has nurtured almost 8,000 members. Andy Gish is the co-founder of Kimono My House, and she and City Lights producer Summer Evans recently spoke about the history behind the group, as well as what comes next for them now that live music is returning to our city. I'm a certified emergency room nurse and was working in the emergency room uh, in March of 2020. I'm also a musician and have been since I was a kid. And so my life revolves around seeing music and rehearsals and playing music. I mean, it's really the most important thing to me. So in March of 2020, when everything grinded to a halt, I had to cancel five shows. Uh, The world seemed very small all of a sudden. And for me, I wanted a way to stay connected to that community. So I came up with this idea of like, why don't we find a way to play for each other online? I know there's this Facebook Live. I've not, I hadn't really used it before much. And, um, and I called my friend Kim and said, what do you think of this? My idea was for me and 20 of my friends, the people that I've played with, the people that are in my bands to stay connected. It was very much about what I needed. But what turned out is that that's what everybody needed. And I think that's why it took off and it morphed into something that I couldn't have had any idea it would turn into. When did you notice it growing from just 20 of your friends to now it's at 7,000 members, but when did you start seeing it progress where you were like, okay, we need to create an about page and there needs to be set rules and a calendar. When did that start? I mean, it started to morph into something much, much larger than us very quickly. Kim and I first talked about the idea on, I think, March 12th, March 13th. We, you know, wrote to a few friends and said, hey, would you play for us? And that day, a few people played. And then the next day, more people played. And then, I mean, it exponentially grew. And I would say pretty much within two weeks, most musicians that I know in Atlanta that I've seen play and play with were members of Kimono My House. And we're saying, hey, when can I play a show or how do I do this? Kim Ware is the rule person, which is awesome. I'm more of the idea and get people on board. And she's the, okay, well, here are the rules. Because we did, we wanted to keep it organized. We wanted to keep its scope very small. And we didn't want it to be, you know, junked up. So we have some very clear rules. The plan for Come Out of My House was for it to be a live venue. It was only for live performances. You couldn't put a video that you'd made up there. You couldn't broadcast your own personal page and then 
send that broadcast to come on my house. You had to actually go to the venue, just like you would go to the Earl or the star bar and you'd press live and you'd perform from there. And it was just for that community. There are two ways you could do that. You could do just a pop-up, which is like, you know, two to three songs, 10 to 20 minutes, kind of like an introduction. If you hadn't used Facebook live, it was a good way to introduce yourself. And as long as somebody else wasn't playing, you could pop up and do that. And a lot of people were introduced to it that way. That's the first time they did it. Now, if you want to do a formal show, you would email us and schedule it and we'd give you an hour slot and you'd play anywhere from 30 minutes to an hour. And all of these videos would be on the timeline of your Facebook page for people to view it. Yes. If you go to the Come On On My House page on Facebook, they're all archived. And the last I looked, which was probably two months ago, there were over 600 archived shows. Wow. Um, yeah. And unless somebody decides to take it down themselves, then they then it's there forever. It's become its own, just like a venue. It's become a venue. It's like there are different groups of people who go to each other's performances. And, you know, they're always in the chat section while that person's performing. One of the things that like the feedback that we were getting was, oh my God, this is a godsend. This is what I needed. Number one, many of these people are professional musicians and they rely on it for part of their income. And one of the things we always encouraged is, you know, when you're talking or when you're, when you go live, check in and let us know how you're doing and let us know if you need anything, put your Venmo up there so we can send you cash. And it actually created some income for some of these people sometimes more than they would make at regular shows. It also got people connected. And some of the feedback that's come back to me and what I've also observed is that, you know, I've been a part of the Atlanta community since the late 90s. And as we get older and people have kids and move around and get, you know, different jobs, we sometimes become disconnected. And what this has done is it's brought some people back together who haven't really communicated or seen each other play in a while. People who have left Atlanta, one of them lives in Taos, New Mexico, one lives in California. They're still part of this community and it allowed them to still connect with people in Atlanta. So for the musicians to perform on Kimono My House, did they have to have some Georgia or Atlanta connection? They didn't necessarily have to be based here, just some connection to the state? No, they absolutely don't have to have a connection to Georgia. It's just that most of the people who were originally associated with it were from this community. But we've had repeat performances from a guy from Pakistan, which was amazing. So no, anybody's welcome. But I will say that I'm very Georgia-centric. So mm -hmm. Let's talk about the name of the group, Kimono My House. Is that a play on Come Over to My House? Yes, Kimono My House is a play on Come Over to My House, which was something we couldn't do, right? But it's also the name of an album by a band called Sparks. And it was a crowdsourced name. Like, you know, when we got our first, whatever, 20 to 50 friends involved in this, we said, we need a name for this thing that we're going to create. You know, what do you think? And someone came up with that. and I thought it was perfect. Yeah, it rolls off the tongue very nicely. It's very memorable. Yeah, I never would have come up with it myself. So, I mean, that's part of the community. It's like all crowdsourced, you know, it is its own entity. You spoke about the seasoned performers, the professional ones. What has it been like for the beginners and the up and coming musicians? So there is a woman who plays on Kimono My House and she was never a performer before. She was relatively new to Atlanta, as I understand it. I might be getting this wrong, but she was relatively new to Atlanta and she picked up the ukulele and started playing. And like now she performs shows. I mean, I think that's the thing is it's very welcoming. It's like all are welcome. We have shows of people doing performances in their pajamas. So, <laughs> and that's where we were, right? That's what we, <laughs> that's exactly where we were, you know, in March and April and May of 2020. So has the feedback from those new artists have they said that this is a good transition for them when they perform in front of a live in-person audience? Oh, I mean, absolutely. Even from a personal standpoint, I've played hundreds of times on a stage, but getting ready for, you know, a live show and come on to my house, 
always made me anxious. You know, was the sound going to be right? Would it look okay? Would the Wi-Fi go out? It is a good preparation for a live in-person show. Yeah. So tell me about the calendar that's available for people to sign up. How does that work? And who schedules those shows each day? Is there a certain cap on every day that can have a certain amount of shows? How does that work? It's super simple. And that's the thing. We kind of wanted this to run itself, which it really does. There is a Gmail address that we created in a Google Calendar. And you can look at the Google Calendar. And if there's a spot, you can take it. You write us and say, I want this time. And, you know, as long as someone else hasn't signed up for it, you can have it. So we've done a couple festivals and we did one in April to benefit local venues and the workers at those venues, you know, the bartenders, the wait staff. And we had three days of performances. They were back to back from maybe 11 a.m. to midnight or 1 a.m. And it was amazing. I mean, it was We tried to get groups together that would play together in the real world in different time slots. And each one of us would watch that day and make sure everything went smoothly, make sure everybody knew how to go live and troubleshoot things if things weren't working. I think we had 40 performances for the first festival, maybe more for the second one. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. So it was just one after the other with, say, people weren't playing in the same room One band, say, in East Atlanta would be playing, and then boom, that would end, and then a new live would start in someone else's house. Exactly. Yep, exactly. While I was scrolling through the Facebook page, I noticed that there were some interactive sessions that are offered. Can you talk about those and how that differs from the regular live shows? Right. So a few different people have taken it like upon themselves to create their own show, I guess, within channel, I guess, if you view come in, come on my house as a channel, this is their show. Like for on Wednesdays, there's something called the BLT, which is Lars Nagel and um, Tom Cheshire, and they have a guest and they started doing that last summer, twice a month, and now they do it every week. And so that's a slot that they have every Wednesday, and they bring a guest on. There are things on Friday as well, which is music and discussion. Um, And so different people, I mean, just like you'd have at a regular venue in real life, they may have, you know, right club happens on a certain night in Atlanta and Monday comedy hour happens on Mondays at the star bar. So it's very similar to that. And they build their own audience. And, you know, that changes through time, of course, as well, which again, it's another thing, you know, I feel like Kimono My House is its own entity. Uh, It will continue to be its own entity. And um, I'm just kind of a steward to try to make sure it stays, you know, focused and go forward, you know. Mm -hmm. And speaking of going forward, what do you think the future of Kimono My House will be? Being that more venues are starting to open and festivals are opening the doors to a lot more people. What do you think is the future of Kimono My House? The future of Kimono My House and live music and live venues um, has been a discussion a lot lately. And everything with this group has been very genuine and just a natural transition of what people want or what the needs are. I suspect it will continue to exist. If it doesn't, I'm okay with that too, because it has served an amazing purpose for me. What we are seeing and what we're encouraging too, is if somebody has a live show to have someone have a camera there and go live from that show. And we've had that happen several times in the past few weeks. For instance, a couple weeks ago, I couldn't go to a show because of my schedule, but I was able to cast it to my television and watch it on my television. In real life, I mean, that's real life. Sometimes there are, you know, four shows going on and there's no way you could do it. You know, you're sick or you have childcare issues or whatever it is. It actually allows people to still participate. What I've seen is that more professional videographers get involved as well. It's not just me and my iPhone in my living room. (laughs) So we had a show with professional videographers. I think that's what you call them handling the feed, which is great because that's way beyond my expertise. But we also have moderators within the group. We have a girl named Gretchen, who's kind of like our girl Friday. And from the beginning, she would go and help people 
to figure out how to do videos themselves. And now she's going to shows and broadcasting them to come out of my house. So if you can't get to the show, you can still watch um, online. I think that's so smart because musicians, they want to reach as many people as possible so they can get their music out there. And not only will they have the people in person at the venue, but then they'll be broadcasting to thousands of people that tune in on Kimono My House. Right. I mean, you can always go back and watch it. And there's a view count. And I'm always interested in that because, I mean, you know, when you log on on a live feed, it takes people a while to actually, you know, get on there. But then if you look at it later, there are, you know, hundreds more views than you thought because people logged on later or they watched it at another time. Musician and co-founder of Atlanta's Kimono My House, Andy Gish, speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. You can learn more about the virtual venue on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Welcome back to City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis. In the late 90s, the Atlanta Housing Authority tore down the East Lake Meadows Housing Project to make way for a mixed income development known as the Villages of East Lake. Documentarians David McMahon and Sarah Burns give former residents a chance to have their stories heard in East Lake Meadows, a public housing story. Last April, WABE's Kevin Rinker spoke with the filmmakers as well as former Meadows resident Asila Muhammad, and he began by asking Burns and McMahon why they decided to make Eastlake Meadows the focus of the documentary. So at the outset of the film, you outline a history of public housing. It lays out the eventual nationwide efforts to redevelop and or tear down public housing. What made you decide to focus on East Lake Meadows specifically when when this was going on all around the country? Yeah, you know, our interest first came really when we were introduced to the story of the new community in East Lake and the redevelopment that had happened there. And we, you know, there was a bunch of, there had been a bunch of coverage of that and we read some articles and we came down and visited, but we quickly recognized that the story, just telling the story of the new community was really incomplete and that to think about public housing and public housing transformation and redevelopments like that, we had to go back and we wanted to focus our story on the community that was there before on East Lake Meadows, on the people who lived there. But even then we had to go back even further as you mentioned to the history of how we got there in the first place. Why did we build East Lake Meadows where it was at the time we built it? Who had public housing served initially and how had that changed that all that was really important to understanding the experiences of the people in East Lake Meadows which we had to understand in order to talk about what has changed there since it was torn down you know what struck me most while watching the documentary were those residents telling their lived experiences as you said other takes have highlighted like Tom Cousins a developer who worked with the Atlanta Housing Authority to redevelop East Lake Meadows and and also just looking at how things are now after the redevelopment. Why did you focus on the people who were living there before redevelopment occurred? There have been a fair number of accounts of what transpired there, and they, they do tend to focus on the villages at East Lake and what had happened with the transformation of the community. And it felt to us as though there was a group of people whose perspective on what happened had often been overlooked in these accounts. And they proved to be the lifeblood of the story and they share their 
joys, the pain they experience, the humor, their humanity, all of it. And I think it's not really um, a completed, as Sarah mentioned, account without their perspective. So was it difficult to find as many former residents as you did? Yeah, it, it, it was. It was definitely a process. It took us about a year, really. We started early on in the project. We came across a short clip, about 10 minutes maybe, from a project that had been done called the Video Club, this group of kids in fourth and fifth graders, I think, at the East Lake Elementary School who did an after-school program and a teacher gave them video cameras and they were recording their neighborhood. And we came across a small clip from that film and we tracked down the teacher and we, we actually hired a private investigator to help us find phone numbers for the kids then, you know, now adults, but these kids who had participated in this project and we found them and we talked to them and they were great, but it, it was a long, slow process even to find them. And we needed more people and we needed different perspectives. You know, these, these were people who were fairly young still when Eastlake Meadows was torn down and we wanted people across generations and across decades. And so some of our colleagues suggested starting a Facebook page and we were kind of skeptical at first, but they convinced us and they spent a very little bit of, of money promoting this page in Atlanta. And within a week, we had about 1,500 people who were engaging in some way with this Facebook page. But what we were really thrilled to find was that this community, even though it's physically gone, East Lake Meadows is gone, that, that they're really still online was some pretty strong connections between people who had lived in East Lake Meadows. And so that helped us very much in being able to find people because once we started finding some people, they knew each other and they had these connections and they stayed in touch. And there was East Lake Day, um, which you see at the end of the film and, and ways that people remain connected. And so that, that helped us find more people who lived in East Lake Meadows and people from, from different decades, you know, lived there in the 70s and 80s and 90s and many generations of families. One thing I, I liked about the documentary was that you included animations in, in the film sort of as a way to reenact and depict events that weren't necessarily caught on camera, I assume. Why did you decide to do that, kind of go the animation route, and, and who created those animations? Yeah, the animations were done by an artist and illustrator and animator named Molly Schwartz. I think we initially thought about the possibility of using animation for a couple of reasons. One, you, you've already pointed at that, that, as you can imagine, some of these moments that people were describing in their interviews, we did not have photographs or footage of those moments. Finding something to approximate these moments, we didn't think was going to work very well. There are times when we do that, you know, if we don't have a photo of the exact moment we're talking about, we find something that is as close as possible. But in this case, so many of those, those stories were people's really intimate um, memories of things sometimes tragic, sometimes happy, but, but we were really in, in our subjects' heads, in their memories. And we felt like animation might do better justice to those memories than some kind of approximation with a still photograph. You know, you have Willie Harrison talking about what it was like when he became addicted to crack. And sure, we could show the outside of a building in Eastlake and kind of imagine that he might be inside that boarded up apartment, but we felt like the animation could bring us more intimately into those stories. And that was, was really important to us. And we felt like Molly and her team really got that, really understood it. And it was a great experience to to work on that and to figure out how to try to find one look that could be sort of cohesive across the film for all these different stories, but help us tell both these, in some cases, really intense, tragic, difficult stories, and in other cases, really joyful ones. Asila Muhammad is one of the residents you interviewed for the documentary. And I want to turn to her right now. Asila, what was East Lake Meadows like when you and your family moved there? Well, by the time we moved in in the 90s, um, around the 1990s, some of that more violent part of East Lake had somewhat, let's say, died down. Some were 
the police presence was more um, vigilant over there. But at the same time, you still had your drugs. You still had some shootings that was going on in being a broad daylight. The first day that we moved in and not long after we had moved in and started getting settled in, the people that we knew that was up under the steps playing craps, one of the people had got killed or had got shot. So that was my first time I, well, I ever really experienced that. All of my children have ever had experienced that because they was pretty young at that time. And they really wanted to move back out. They wanted to get the truck. They wanted to put stuff back on the truck and move. But at that moment in time, we really didn't have no other options but to stay put in Eastlake. Listening to residents talk about living there, it doesn't take long to understand the uphill battle you all faced. Asila, when you lived there, was there a feeling of abandonment by those who could help? Or was it, you know, just how things were? Were people just, this is how it goes, you know, this is a housing project and, and this is what we expect. We don't expect anything else. A lot of people might have had that mindset. And it's probably a lot of people had that mindset on the outside looking in. But for the people that lived on the inside, like myself and maybe others, they did feel that way, that we was abandoned. Uh, We couldn't get the help when we needed the help. But it took this one courageous person that you might as well said that was the mother of East Lake that everybody looked up to. And she was the voice of East Lake, and that was Eva Davis. Maybe a few weeks or maybe a month after I had moved in, I got a chance to meet her because she was walking through the neighborhood. And anytime she heard new residents have moved in, she tried to go and meet them. And just from meeting her that first day, her vibes, her her demeanor, her want to just say, hey, you need something? If something ain't happening, let me know. I mean, that made you even feel like, well, hey, somebody do care. Eva Davis played a huge role in this film. And I'm curious, Sarah and David, when you set out to make the film, I imagine her name started popping up from many people that you talked to. At what point did you realize that that she was just the person, the like central point of, you know, fighting for this community? Well, I think her name had already become synonymous with East Lake Meadows and the villages of East Lake by the time we got to the to the story. But everybody we interviewed had something to say about Ms. Davis, whether it was funny or it was that they were grateful or that they had some analysis, some encounter with her. Everyone had something to say. And she really is a remarkable character. She came from rural area, um, was looking to find work, arrived in Atlanta in time to cut her teeth, marching with the ministers and the civil rights movement there. And I think that's in part where she learned her organizing chops. And so when East Lake Meadows was open and she moved in very soon after, she was the right person to advocate for the tenants when the different systems that were supposed to support them began to break down. Yeah, despite really awful conditions inside the apartments, like roach infestations, holes in the ceilings and walls, and also outside the apartments on the property or nearby with shootings and drug dealing and garbage just building up, the sense of community many of the residents felt toward one another was palpable throughout the movie. And I think Eva Davis played a huge role in that, or at least that's how the the film presents it. Asila, aside from or in addition to Eva Davis, what was it? about East Lake Meadows that brought residents together, despite all of the, you know, really tough conditions in and around the the project? Well, basically a lot that brought us together was just knowing that all of us lived in this community and each one of us had something, some type of perspective in common, whether we all didn't, couldn't afford to live outside of that community without the assistance of Atlanta housing, or, you know, some of them had been living there for decades. I mean, from when they first started there. Like I said, when I met Ms. Davis and later on we got together, I joined the resident association. She asked me to be her vice president of, of the resident association. 
and I was honored and I won the election. And if it wasn't for her, I probably wouldn't be talking to you really because I was really that stay to myself, shy type person. You can't tell it now, but I was. When Sarah and David did reach out to me, I was somewhat surprised, but a little reluctant being in the documentary. But my husband said, that's a chance to tell my story about living there. And I was never ashamed to say that I lived in East Lake Meadows. I'm actually proud to say I lived in East Lake Meadows. In order to redevelop the land, the Atlanta Housing Authority did promise to relocate residents and then allow those who wanted to to return. Asila, based on what I saw in the documentary, you accepted a Section 8 voucher and eventually found housing in Gwinnett County. Why didn't you end up returning to Eastlake? I was asked to really just not come back to the Eastlake villages once it was built. And I signed a document through the Atlanta Housing Authority, which I was approached by Ms. Glover and Rick White was the public affairs person that I used to work with at the Atlanta Housing Authority. With me and Ms. Davis together, we was too much of a powerhouse to affect the residents and to make sure that the changes was going to take place. So in order to get it to work the way they want it to work, they had to separate the two. Do you wish you had gone back or are you you, uh, happy with where you are? Actually, when I got that Section 8 and moved out to Gwinnett County, really it was another avenue was open for me, another door open. And once that door opened and another one closed on on a chapter of my life, I didn't want to go back. I really did. I had a home. I wasn't living in an apartment. I wasn't living around anybody that could cause problems with me and my family. We had a an actual home. No, I didn't look back. It's clear that, that things worked out for some residents like Eva Davis getting to move back into the community as she really wanted to after the redevelopment became the villages at Eastlake. And in some ways, it sounds like it worked out for you, Asila, getting to move out into Gwinnett County and raise your family in an environment that worked for you. But that certainly wasn't the case for everyone. There were some people who wanted to go back who weren't able to. And that's despite the redevelopment often being lauded as a success. It sounds like it was a lot more complicated than than just redevelopment. And voila, we've got a great community now. What are people, and this goes to, to anyone who wants to answer, what are those who focus on the success of the redevelopment missing? You know, I think you're right, just that it's more complicated than that. And that doing this kind of work to try to, you know, improve a space that has the kind of problems that East Lake Meadows had is really important um, and is a good thing to try to solve some of those problems. But as you as you observed, it's not as simple as just saying, well, let's make a better place because you can build a place that is more successful. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the people who need that help, the people who were living there before, are all benefiting from it or benefiting in the same ways. And certainly some people did benefit from this transformation in different ways. For some people, Section 8 was a good thing. For some people, it wasn't as good a thing. And and there is that loss of community, I think, that happens when people move out. And as we address in the film, Section 8, you know, it's certainly not a silver bullet. I think it, it, you know, landlords have been able to discriminate against people who have vouchers. And so you can't live anywhere you want with a voucher. And so it's just, it's more complicated. And also the Atlanta Housing Authority did did not do a very careful job in tracking all of the people from East Lake Meadows. And so we were never, never able to get really clear data on exactly where everyone went and where they ended up and what all those outcomes were. And so what we were trying to do in the film was to present a variety of experiences and outcomes. And we talked to hundreds of people in order to try to find that kind of array of experiences so that we could at least anecdotally get at the complexity of that. And to add on to that, we had made it clear to the resident association that a lot of people wouldn't be able to move back because where when we was living in East Lake itself, it was rules, but the rules weren't in 
forced. And when you got ready to move into a new development of the village of Eastlake, then there was rules. And these rules was not only from saying from the housing authority perspective, but you had to remember rules came in from the marketplace perspective as well. So those rules in conjunction made it even harder for people because like now today, everybody just can't move an apartment wherever they want to move to because of the rules. And if you didn't have rules in place, we will be right back where we started from all over again. David and Sarah, in your research for this film and, and just, you know, from the people you talked to who are telling viewers about the history of public housing and just kind of giving the framework for why a place like East Lake Meadows would have come about and the, the way it was redeveloped. Did you find any cities or specific developments that have done this right, either in the U.S. or around the world, where, where it, it looks like everyone or many more people than was the case at East Lake Meadows were able to find housing and, and come back if they wanted to, if it was a redevelopment type thing? You know, it's not the focus of the film, but in our conversations with consultants and with people who are advising us um, and trying to get a sense of this, I have the sense that there are places across the country, in particular in Boston and San Francisco, I've heard of a place in New Mexico, where the community and all the stakeholders were able to come together and find a way to, to have a kind of one-for-one replacement community that included all of the people who wanted to come back who were living in the housing before it was demolished. I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all solution. I think there are a lot of factors that differ in each community, but I think maybe the one thing that the places that are successful in this would have in common is that they put the community members in the foreground and make sure that they're an important part of the solution. And, and at East Lake Meadows, before it became the villages, and those were three years of negotiations and construction and demolition um, as a long period of time for people to go wondering what it is their new community would look like. And the people that live there, thanks to Ms. Davis, thanks to Seela Muhammad, thanks to some others, they pushed to make sure they had a voice in that conversation. At the end of the day, who got to return? Those decisions were in the hands of other people. I think in the future, when public housing communities come down, that the people who live there should always be in the foreground, and then the best solutions, local solutions, will be the solutions that are arrived at. Filmmakers David McMahon and Sarah Burns, along with former Meadows resident Asila Muhammad, talking with WABE's Kevin Rinker about East Lake Meadows, a public housing story. The film is available for streaming on pbs.org. You're listening to WABE, Atlanta's home for NPR. Welcome back to City Lights on WABE. I'm Kim Drobes, in for Lois Reitzis. Thanks for listening. Apple pie is often thought of as the classic American dessert, but if you really want to get to know America, you're better off ditching the pies and looking at cake. All styles and manners of cake in America often represent centuries-old stories of immigration patterns, politics, social climates, and more. In other words, you can learn a lot about American history by examining the evolution of our most distinguished desserts. Best-selling author and journalist Anne Byrne spent over two years researching the intersection of those subjects for her new book, American Cake, From Colonial Gingerbread to Classic Layer, the stories and recipes behind more than 125 of our best-loved cakes. The author recently joined City Lights executive producer and host, Lois Reitzis, to share the history behind some of our favorite sweets. Cake has always been my passion. I've written about it in other books and through the years in newspaper work. But I could never get the real story behind so many cakes I loved. Um, You know, how did they begin? Who had ever heard of the Lane Cake? Where did the red velvet really start? And as a journalist, I was curious and wanted to find out those stories. And so that is why I started this book. And then it became much, much more. (laughs) (laughs) It is much more indeed. And that's why it's so engrossing. 
You're right about cake through the centuries of United States history. Would you give us some examples of each era and talk about how cake evolved over time? Well, definitely. I think in the early America, of course, cake came from the from the settlers, people who came here. They brought traditions with them and they brought recipes from their homeland. But what was interesting about that early period is that they then had to encounter native ingredients and local things. And and then, of course, politics. And could they use the British treacle or would they rather use molasses instead? Uh-huh. And molasses became a very revolutionary ingredient in early America for on many different levels. And so American cake began evolving very quickly. And then leavening early on, early cakes were leavened with yeast, which was in, from the beer making process. And and as that progressed, you know, new chemical leaveners started. Hardwood was cleared in upstate New York. Ash was there. Ash was potash, became pearl ash. It became one of the first chemical leaveners, which then became baking powder. And so all of a sudden, our American cakes evolved. And the westward movement, you know, of the pioneers and settlers that left the east and went west, how they couldn't carry their hens with them to lay eggs. So they created cakes, which I call cowboy cakes, baked in cast iron along the trails. And that sort of frontierism, that frontier style of baking, the use of, even today, the use of evaporated milk is still used in pockets of our country where refrigeration was not. Well, Oklahoma, Hawaii, different parts. So I think through the years, and then, of course, you add in uh, the, the turn of the century, industrial age, and then the war years and depression and the rationing of ingredients really affected the way we bake post-war America and then today. It's, it's been a journey. It really is fascinating to read about how you document the cake through these various favors, various phases in our American historic life and social factors, behavioral factors, politics, science. Speaking of science, there there seems to be an ongoing culinary argument about um, cooking being um, when one is cooking, one can perhaps be more creative or improvisatory. Right. But baking is scientific. One must not deviate. Where do you weigh in on that? Oh, I think baking, you need the science of baking, but you also need the creativity of cooking. Uh, you have to be able to sort of adjust and adapt as you go along because that's what makes things interesting. And in early America, they had to adjust and adapt. Um, you had to use what you had. You had to use the wheat that was grown in your area. You had to use sugar. If you couldn't afford sugar, you used, you baked with maple syrup or, or local honey. Hmm. So I think you have to be... The best bakers are creative bakers, but you also have a respect for science because it is it is what makes cake work. Yeah, you it is, You have to kind of get get excited about that process. And indeed, yeah. with the chemical uh, components, the baking powder, yeah, or, definitely uh, that sort of. When we get into uh, the nineteenth century, immigrants play. Uh, an increasingly important role. How did immigrants add to the mix, so oh to speak? Gosh. We would really be nowhere in cake baking in this country without the, 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 the creativity and the input from immigrants. Early on, the German, the German immigrants really brought us a love of baking cakes, and they also brought us um, a knowledge of putting ingredients up in the summertime, such as blackberry jam from local blackberries, and then they would save that jam and turn it into a Christmas cake, a blackberry jam cake. And that cake started in Ohio and came down through Kentucky, Tennessee, and then over into the Carolinas. Just the Germans gave so much. And then also Eastern Europeans, as they came in, um, their love of cheesecake. And then with the invention of cream cheese, or actually the commercialization of cream cheese um, in the New York City area, contests were held, the love of cheesecake, the religious aspect of cream cheese and cheesecake in the Jewish community was profound. And you write about... um 
a Quaker cheesecake. Definitely. Well, the first cheesecakes in America were Quaker because the Quakers were dairy farmers. And what did they do with the leftover curds? They would turn it into a, a baked product. The Quakers were very influential on the way we baked. They were also, you know, abolitionists. And so they would not bake with white sugar at one point in American history, and they were proponents of baking with molasses. Because it was was slave sugar. Because white sugar was slave sugar, yes. And there, you know, there are so many sort of the the fascinating part of this book was understanding all the cultural influences that went on Without us even knowing this, it's such been, it's been a beautiful rediscovery. Well, of your history. your research is so extensive. I wondered how long did it take you to complete yeah. this book? Yeah, it was about a little over two years of research. Um, you know, started with old newspapers. I am a newspaper person, um, and I believe that newspapers captured the day's events better than cookbooks. Cookbooks are usually about five years later, but if you really want to know what happened in that day of history, so I tell people, you know, when they're interested in this kind of thing, you know, go back and get a newspaper subscription. Look back in old papers and sort of type random things in the search box. You know, you, you'd be surprised what you may find. Would you tell us a little bit more about the role of social class and resources surrounding cake? Yeah, Begin, definitely. Beginning in the 18th century. A- absolutely. You you could either afford the ingredients to make a pound cake, which was an early American cake, or you could not. There were those who ha- there were the haves and have-nots, and I think that was I was. I went into this project with my eyes wide open because I didn't I didn't want to assume that everyone could afford to make a cake because you couldn't. And so it was really wasn't until we were commercializing sugar production in the United States that that it became widely available to most people. Sugar was the premium ingredient in the beginning. And so you and it was a necessary component of those early cakes. So it was definitely a have or have not. I think throughout history, there were always ways for people to one-up themselves in the company of others. Even when the wedding cake, you know, was popular, it became white after the, after Queen Victoria's wedding. Um, to be able to make a white cake, you had to have bleached flour, white sugar. Think about it. Irony, All too. the irony, of it. <laughs> exactly. So, so interesting. And then even more irony, think about today, where you are going to a restaurant, the restaurant has hired a pastry chef. The pastry chef is using the best ingredients possible. You're using a very unbleached flour, possibly locally grown, a raw sugar. The cake is not white. It's anything but white. It's hefty. It has more texture, more substance, um, more, Sounds, fl- more flavor. Get me a fork right now. <laughs> I wanted a chocolate wedding cake, and I remember my mother and um, also um, the chef mm-hmm. saying, you can't be serious. You know, it just, it won't look bridal. It won't be <laughs> wedding-like. And I said, but it will be delicious. delicious. And so I, we had it. Oh, you won out. Good for you. Well, and my husband's mother was from southern Germany originally. Okay. So um, with a nod to her, we wanted a black forest cake. Wonderful. So yeah, we got all of the above and now I mean wedding cakes aren't white. I mean No. No, and they're hard, and and now they're not frosted around the outside. They're called bare or naked cakes. And yeah, I know. There's, there's a lot of variation. There, you know, one of the illustrations and recipes for this 1963 cake you have on the cover <laughs> is so scrumptious and it made me think about the ratio of frosting to cake. Mm-hmm. And and you write about frosting and sort of the ebb and flow of its popularity. Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of the things that is less satisfying about cupcakes mm-hmm. because you don't have the frosting between the layers. That's interesting. Because you don't have layers. Yeah. And frosting really... Um, performs an important task in the layered cake because it keeps the layers moist. It adds, if you think about it visually, it adds that color separation. It's lovely. You can have that play on flavors. Um, It adds so much. You're right. It is just the cake and the frosting on top. And if you look at, um, if you really want to look at cake culturally, then look at how much frosting is on a cake of a particular period, and that will pretty much tell you the availability of sugar. 
um, in cakes out of the 1930s, um, simple meringue, simple meringue, run back under the broiler, very quick. Hmm. Cakes today, very little frosting. Why? I I, I don't know. I think it's just. This. I think it's a it's a it's a shift away from the late 90s 2000s cupcake uh. phrase. I really do. I think it's the overfrosting of the cupcake, and. People moving away from that and wanting a more savory taste. Oh, cakes are yes. moving more the more vegetable flavors. Yes, and you do flavors. note that mm-hmm. it, that lavender, basil, adding these all things. the old world. It's very much like the mixology that's going on in cocktail. Is the same thing happening in the baking world? They're very similar. They overlap, and it is understanding and going back and understanding the story behind it, using recreating those old ingredients. And bringing them back in a new way. In the introduction to American Cake, you quote the historian Daniel Borston as saying, what made Americans who they were was not what they sought, but what they accomplished. We've talked about immigrant contributions. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the Germans and Eastern Europeans. Certainly, French cuisine had its impact, probably beginning mid-20th century. Well, definitely mid-20th century. But before that, the French were very important in Charleston. And they were probably the ones who brought us the love of the caramel flavor. The French also in New Orleans, Mm -hmm. they were the ones making the first pralines, candying pecans. I think the jury's still out on the use of dairy in pralines and that did that come from the Spanish? You know, that was a sort of commingling down there. But yeah. you're right. The 1960s uh, in America was very, very important period. With the early 60s, with Julia Childs mastering the art of French cooking, uh, the Kennedys in the White House yes. with the French chef. Um, Dion Lucas before that in the late 50s brought us the chocolate roulade, which was our first taste of a flourless chocolate cake. Mm-hmm. So think about what they did at that period of time. When we were a country awash in bake-offs and station wagons and nine by thirteen pans, <laughs> so what makes a, a cake American, and what did America bring to cake? The truly most American cake is the chiffon cake. That was an invention of Harry Baker, who went to Hollywood to bake for the for the movie stars, and that was unique because he used vegetable oil in a cake with beaten egg whites. That is probably the one cake that was invented on our soil. Author Ann Byrne talking with City Lights executive producer and host Lois Reitzes. Byrne's book, American Cake, is available now wherever fine books are sold. You've been listening to City Lights, WABE's daily exploration of arts and culture. You can catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9, Monday at 11 a.m., author Cassine Gaines on his book, Footnotes, the Black artist who rewrote the rules of the Great White Way. City Lights executive producer and host is Lois Reitzes. Our producer is Summer Evans, and Shelley Canavy is our engineer. I'm senior producer Kim Drobes. Follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights, and follow Lois on Twitter at Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening to member-supported WABE. Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.